Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. There's a show on Broadway at the Marquee Theatre. opens up with just this fellow. He's called Man in Chair, Sitting in Chair. Well, today the Man in Chair is sitting opposite us to, on Downstage Center. Bob Martin, welcome. Thank you. The Drowsy Chaperone. Yes. Now, the whole story about how it came to being 80 years ago in 1998 as a wedding present for you and your now wife, Janet Vandercraft. Yes. Interesting story. Can you start at the beginning and tell us exactly what happened? Well, um, what happened was Janet and I were getting married, and uh, we're part of a community of performers in Toronto, and uh, one of the performers is one of my oldest friends, Lisa Lambert, and I asked her to be the best man of my wedding. Mm-hmm. And so part of her responsibilities was to uh, organize the bachelor party. And I said, you know, no strippers, but whatever you want to do is fine with me. And what she did and with Greg Morrison and Don McKellar and Matt Watts and a few other writers from our community was create this fictional 1928 musical called The Drowsy Chaperone about uh, a woman named Janet Vandegraaff, same name as my wife, marrying a man named Robert Martin. And um, she was giving up uh, show business to marry, which was not the case in my marriage. Um, and they presented this little show at a club called the Rivoli in Toronto, where we performed frequently. And uh, we didn't know what to expect. We had no idea this was happening. We saw there was an ad in the paper that invited the public to come and see Bob and Janet's stag party. <laughs> and so we went. The people bought tickets to go to your strangers were public. there. Yes, wow. strangers were there. And and. Um, and we saw this thing, and it was it was this beautiful, fully costumed, fake musical from the twenties. And we thought we have to do something with this. But but at that point, it was something you were watching. And at the end of the show, did you go? It's really terrific, but you know what? It's missing me. <laughs> <laughs> there, it wasn't exactly that chain of logic, but uh, I did. I, I we we had always planned to create a, a musical that involved uh, music and comedy from another era. And we'd always talked about how to actually present it. And so we'd, we'd had discussions about perspective on a show like that. And so when I saw this show, and it was it was it had so much good stuff in it, I thought, well, this is the kernel we should begin with. And, and after the stag... Um, I, in my life, you know, work and uh, and friendships overlap completely. <laughs> and, and the work for you at that point was Second City, and you yes. you, you were all theater folk, basically comedy folk. Theater and television, and the improv community, mm-hmm. and and uh, again that community, improv, theater, and comedy all overlaps in Toronto uh, quite nicely. Um, so yeah, we were all from those disciplines, and um, and we love creating shows, and we did a lot of fringe theater at that time. So we we took uh, the drowsy chaperone, built the frame around it and within it, uh, really the man in chair conceit of a man who's just sharing with the audience his favorite musical from the 1920s, and it comes to life around him, and and and, and that's how we approached the show, and it was. Uh, we did it at the Fringe of Toronto. Actually, my wife produced it at the Fringe of Toronto. And it was a huge, unprecedented hit. Mm-hmm. The biggest hit in the history of the Fringe at that time. And mm. not that we expected that at all. But huge, unprecedented hit, you say, in the Fringe. So we're still talking about you're doing it at a theater. How big? It was a couple of hundred seats. And on a budget yeah, Maybe 400 of... seats. $200, maybe. That. Canadian as, <laughs> at that time, okay. you know, as opposed to roughly ten million American at the Marquee Theater. It, we've come a long way, <laughs> <laughs> and how? Yes, 
Um, but at that, even at that level, the Fringe, we we, we were reviewed in Variety magazine in New York, uh, which was amazing. And we read this review, which said basically, if a savvy producer comes along, they can make a hit out of this show. And it was Mira Freelander, the late Mira Freelander, bless her heart for writing that. And uh, basically. After that, we went to a uh, sort of off-Broadway-style theater called Passmarai, and we made some adjustments to the show, and then to a larger theater called the Winter Garden as part of the Mervish season. That was in Toronto. In Toronto still. And um, the show was sort of evolving and developing, and the cast was changing at every stage. And uh, then two producers saw us, one Canadian and one American, Roy Miller and Paul Mack, and they... uh, brought the show to a fabulous festival called NAMPT in New York. Which is the National Alliance for Musical Theater, which every fall does a presentation for industry people here in New York of a number of new musicals. Just yes. at But at, at music stands, chairs, no costumes, and only about 40 minutes of the actual show. Yes, that's right. Um, we were lucky enough to have this uh, amazing American cast for that reading, including Christine Ebersol, who played the character of Drowsy Chaperone. Mm. And Danny Burstein and Georgia Engel and uh, a lot of really talented performers. And, and w- what year would that have been? 2000 and... That was 2004. 2004. Yes. Okay. yes. Two years ago. Yes. Um, and there was a break of a few years between the Winter Garden production and our first sort of dipping our toe into America, mm-hmm. which was NAMPT. Um, and, and that reading v- went very, very well, uh, which led to Kevin McCullum coming on board and Michael Ritchie uh, taking the show and doing it at the Amundsen Theatre. Uh, in L.A., and then uh, now we, you know, here I am <laughs> with a little bag beside me with two Tony nominations in it, <laughs> and we're running on Broadway. And I have to say that every step along the way, the Fringe, Pass Mariah, we thought it was over. We thought, oh, we did well at the Fringe. Oh, we did well at Pass Mariah. We did well at the... And, and the show just kept going and kept evolving, and now it's better than it's ever been. It's a, really a completely different show tailored for a Broadway audience, and... and uh, we're thrilled. Well, explain that because you've told me in the past that a lot of the material from that very first presentation is now gone. It really has evolved. And it's evolved simply because new material was coming up or as the show grew, the demands of the show. And indeed, coming from Canada, was it different for American audiences? Well, it's a combination of all of those things, really. Um, It was a kind of backwards writing process because we had the show within the show and we were creating the show itself around that, which is not how I would normally work as a writer. And and so it was a process of discovery. And, and, And plus we work in a sort of collaborative way with our cast and we, we write, we, we uh, sort of adjust and tailor the characters to the strengths of the performers that we're working with. So at each um, incarnation, we had uh, a different cast, um, with the exception of myself. And, and, and we, uh, we, so the story subtly changed and the characters grew in a certain way. And then when we came to New York and we had Casey uh, Nicola, our director choreographer, his bringing so much to the table and this cast of really talented dancer, singer, performers, we, we took the show in an entirely new direction, um, you, you know, which involved comic choreography and, and uh, much more complicated orchestrations. And, uh, and so it grew exponentially, basically, when we, when we brought Casey on board. Well, at the, the, the first uh, public viewing of the show back at the Stag Party in 1998, yes. was there a man in chair at that point? The character being no, no, there was not. There was just it was it was um, a sort of pastiche nineteen twenties musical with some in jokes about Janet and myself. So, how did Man in Chair get created? and How did you get to become the Man in Chair? 
Notice I'm not saying the man in the chair because that's the name, man in chair. Man in chair, yes. yes. <laughs> well, again, you know, we had had these discussions about perspective on this. Um, it's funny because you're in town was uh, the same fringe year as, as Drowsy Chaperone. So there's something in the air about postmodern deconstructions of musicals at that time. Um, and uh, I, I was kind of the logical choice because of my particular skills as a performer and writer coming from an improv background and, and being kind of a smart-ass guy. Um, it, I, it was the right role for me to comment on the action that I was seeing. It was, it was very easy to write. And and uh, and I, I like working with an audience um, where sort of I'm basically speaking. They the audience is in a sense my scene partner in this show, and uh, I work off the rhythms of any particular night. Um, so it was just sort of a comfortable role for me. And uh, the character was the appropriate character, I think, for a, a man obsessed with musical theater. Uh, he's a kind of iconic, slightly queeny. Uh, musical theater uh, buff aficionado um, who has a lot of sort of a one big tragedy in his life that has has uh, sort of made him a very kind of low functioning person who escapes into this fantasy world of musical theater um, and I mean the character evolved partly because we thought if, quite frankly that it would be funny to present uh, a character whose marriage was a failed marriage when this uh, grew out of a wedding present for my wife. <laughs> so we thought that that's sort of the only remaining in-joke in, in the show. Well, Man in Chair is played by you, the real-life Bob Martin. There's yes, There's a it character is. in the show who's about to get married called Bob Martin. Yes. How much of the real-life Bob Martin is there in Man in Chair and also the Bob Martin in the show? How much of Bob Martin in both of those characters? Well, I can say that uh, the Bob Martin in the show, Troy Britton Johnson, there's absolutely no, none of me in that character. He's a, a, a very, uh, you know, dashing, uh, charming playboy, wealthy playboy character. Well, you're certainly it, charming. You look rather dashing. <laughs> I, I, I would like to think I'm dashing, but uh, I think, you know, people would disagree with you there. It's radio, so let's allow people to think I'm dashing. Um, at the character of Man in Chair, there's a lot of me in that character, for sure. There's a lot of my kind of neurotic behavior. There's a lot, I would say, also a lot of Lisa Lambert, who the my sort of co-creator, um, lyricist, uh, there's a lot of her in the character. Her fear of telephones, for instance, is is in the show. Hmm. Uh, um, so yes, there's 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 more of me in that. It's a it's a fictionalized character for sure, but I really kind of tried to plumb all my own uh, anxieties and neuroses for that character. Now, when the real life Janet Vandegraaff, your wife, yeah. sees you as man and chair, what does she think of you in the character of man and chair? <laughs> Um, this is getting awfully meta. I'm just curious because here, you know, this has grown out of two real-life people who happen to have people in the show named after them. So there's got to be a lot of you up there. Yes. And then I read somewhere that when you did curtain calls, your wife was a little bit overwhelmed that you were taking bows and curtain calls. Well, and that was um, – that was kinda... Casey Nicola had to teach me how to bow. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, and I don't know whether it's just a – a Canadian thing or just part of my personality but I had trouble stepping forward throwing my arms up and taking a full-fledged Broadway bow so he had to teach me how to do that uh, and and yes when Janet saw me do that she was taken aback a bit like, so not Bob what's going on but it was the appropriate thing to do and I kind of enjoy it now <laughs> I have to say well you know you mentioned the, the Canadian not a Canadian thing to do 
is do you think there is a sensibility about this show that is Canadian or does it does it simply reflect the style of Broadway musicals and that translates from country to country? Um, I think I think it's again a mixture of both things. I think it's something essentially Canadian to uh, observe American pop culture and comment on it from a safe vantage point. Hmm. <laughs> That's a very Canadian thing. Um, I think a lot of satirists um, come out of Canada. People like Mike Myers, and you know, you know because they are, they have that that perspective that perhaps Americans don't, being being immersed in the culture themselves. I mean, we're we're constantly bombarded with with American culture. Our own sort of little television uh, industry and film industry struggles to survive. Um, so, so we, we we anyway we feel I think that we can comment intelligently on it. I think and and that's part of what's what happens in this show. Um, we're able to say a few things about Broadway um, from an outsider's perspective that that uh, things that I think are definitely landing with the audience. Um, some that are critical and some that are just uh, unabashed praise of of what Broadway is. And in terms of the audience, when you when the show first came in, it came in. We should say fairly quickly. It was it had played in Los Angeles. Suddenly, a theater opened up with very little opportunity beforehand. The show is in previews here in New York. People didn't know exactly what it was they were coming to see. Now, yes. of course, it's gotten a lot of acclaim. Has there been a change in the way the audience responds to the show? Because there was probably a discovery in the in the preview period where now more and more people are coming knowing what they're in for. Do you have any sense of that? Yes. The, both in Los Angeles and New York, the preview periods were fabulous. People were coming because they'd heard about this show but didn't understand it, didn't really know. But they were eager to see it. Because some people come in thinking they're just seeing, you know, no, 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 no. Yes. Yes. Well, that's certainly what the subscribers were thinking in L.A., I think. <laughs> Um, but but here we've had enough press that people I, th I I hope are starting to understand that that that's not the case. Um, but yeah, there has w we could feel it basically. The people who came in the preview period knew about the show in New York, and and it was a as I say a wonderful preview period. They were reacting really well. It was a great way to test material. Um, once the show opened, I think we started to get a bit of a wave of your regular Broadway. Uh, theater goers who who didn't know the show very well, and so it was interesting because um, the show would sort of start slowly, and people would understand the comic voice, and then get on board for the ride, and it would it would end really well. Um, because it's an unusual beginning to the show, I think you would agree. Um, and and uh, now with with again the good press that we've gotten, and and uh, we've had much of the opening monologue transcribed in certain major publications. <laughs> I think pu people are coming knowing what to expect and are right on board from the very first note, which is really exciting for me. <laughs> well, we should just uh, point out to the radio audience that the way the show opens, the theater audience is sitting totally in the dark, and a voice, your voice, comes out of the darkness and makes some opening remarks. Yes, it's sort of a prayer. The theater goer's prayer. Which where is? I ba basically ask God pray that it's a it's a good show and that it's short and that there's no audience participation <laughs> all, all the things that frankly go through my mind when i'm sitting in an audience and uh and people have reacted to that very very well obviously it's kind of a universal concern <laughs> but no overture you know no, nothing that you would expect of a typical broadway musical no so it's a it's a bit disorienting and we do have an overture that follows the the period in the dark 
but um, I, I'm quite I'm, I'm quite proud of the beginning of the show, if I might say, because be, being a uh, comic performer primarily, getting laughs in the first few minutes of an evening at the theater is really important to me, and and we are getting that. Mm-hmm. So people know they're going to have fun. They know there's a kind of game involved with the show, and and they're on board. Well, the advertising campaign, a couple different uh, things. One of the ads said a musical within a comedy. So mm-hmm. it's trying to make it clear that it's not your typical musical. Then another uh, slogan or another line went, sometimes you can tell just by looking at a title that a show is going to be amazing. This is not one of those times. Yes, that's true. There's been a lot of discussion about the title, The Drowsy Chaperone. People can't remember quite what it is. I know, it's forgettable. But yeah. it, I, people should understand it was designed that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, was, it was designed to be a title from a forgotten musical of the 20s. So the language had to be archaic and uh, just, just dusty. <laughs> was there any, <laughs> other, any other title ever considered? Um, briefly, there was a discussion uh, uh, about whether we should call it the Oops Girl because um, one of the characters in the show is, is the Oops Girl. It's a sort of sweater girl title. Um, but we decided that the, that was sort of implied some sort of um, sex farce that wasn't appropriate for the Drowsy Chaperone. So, um, so we, we really... We, we really wanted to keep that original title. Now, it's a show within a show. Would you yes. just explain the basic plot line so the audience understands exactly what what is going on in this mu- musical within the comedy? Well, basically, uh, um, Janet Vandegraaff, a showgirl bride, uh, is getting married to Robert Martin, a sort of young, handsome playboy, and she she gives up her career on the stage in order to marry this man that she hardly knows. And uh, her producer, uh, Mr. Feldzig, uh, desperately tries to stop the wedding to keep her in the show. That's that's basically the plot. It's very simple, very light, and very uh, typical of that era. And then various other things ensue with the drowsy chaperone herself. Yes, being rather inebriated, some Marx Brothers type sketches, that that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. I mean, the shows of that period um, still had a slightly review quality to them. Uh, you know, the actual integrated book musical was was pretty young at that point. And uh, we, we, so we, there are certain um, uh, scenes in the show that, that feel very much like vaudevillian reviews that were sort of stuck into the show. And uh, I point that out at several points. And it's, it's just, I think, uh, it's an interesting night at the theater <laughs> for that, well, for that we reason. Should, we should hear a little of the show now. So, yeah, yeah, so you, you, let's, you, let's play a song. And can you, can you set it up for us? Well, this is sung by uh, Sutton Foster as Janet Vandegraaff. And it's um, her sort of ironic a treaty about uh, why she's getting married and leaving show business. What's, what's the song called? It's called Show Off. And she is doing what on stage? She's doing cartwheels. She's jumping literally through a hoop. She's uh, playing uh, glasses, musical glass, uh, you know, whatever that is called. It's, uh, she's showing off. But she's facetiously saying that she wants to get out of showbiz and not yes. show off anymore. yes. <laughs> Sutton Foster as Janet Vandegraaff and the company of The Drowsy Chaperone, which uh, we should point out is nominated for 13 Tony Awards, including you have your name on a couple of the nominations, Bob, for Best Book of a Musical, which you share with Don McKellar, and also as Best Performance by a Leading Actor. And, of course, among those 13, the show itself is nominated as Best Musical. And uh, you picked up a Drama Desk Award recently for the Outstanding Book of a Musical, you and, uh, and Don McKellar, and also won the Drama Desk for Outstanding Musical. Yes, yes. So, 
guy from Canada coming to New York and conquering the Broadway community, so to speak. In, in the first all-Canadian musical since 1980, I'm told. That's right, which which would have been Billy Bishop. And Billy Bishop yes. goes which, to war, a much smaller show. Yes, yes. And only ran a handful of performances. That, I think it was 12, because we marked on the calendar when we surpassed that. <laughs> we so that we could officially say we were the longest-running musical, Canadian longest musical Longest-running Canadian musical in Broadway history. So but, how, did, how does it feel now to be part of the, the theater community here in New York? Well, you know what? We didn't. I don't feel that we did uh, sort of take over Broadway. I felt that Broadway uh, totally embraced us, uh-huh. which was really, really wonderful. I thought, I thought, you know, coming into an, a new community that we would be looked down upon and all, all of that. But, but no, people have been so wonderful. They've completely embraced us and uh, and 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 you know shown us around and helped us out, and it's been it's been a great experience. But also in terms of the Canadian community, is there an aspiration in Canada of coming to Broadway? Is that part of a Canadian uh, actor's dreams, shall we say? Well, I, I think I think probably the experience of uh, you know anyone in musical theater, especially whether they they they're born in Oklahoma or whether they're born in Alberta, uh, they they want to come to New York and work on the Broadway stage. Um, but I, I don't think, in terms of creating shows for Broadway, uh, I, th- I I would hope that uh, Drowsy Chaperones shows that it is possible, and it is possible to do it, you know, from humble beginnings. I mean, you know, Lord of the Rings is being developed now in Canada, and that's twenty-seven million, I think, budget even now. Hmm. Uh, but it, it is it is possible to start with a two hundred dollar budget. <laughs> well, help us to understand the the tradition that you come out of and kind of the theater community that you you and your friends were part of in Canada because it's not something that we've had the opportunity to discuss before on this show. Mm-hmm. You talked about the improv community. Yes. Is that really where it is or is it th- that you're coming out of? As I say, it, it really overlaps because the people mm-hmm. in the improv community also do quite a bit of what you would call legitimate theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's many small, mid-sized theaters in Toronto that do original works. And often the people who work um, at Second City uh, create, uh, are writers as well. So are often writing shows that are done in other theaters like the Tarragon or Passe or uh, other sort of mid-sized theaters. Um, it's, it's a really a, a great community. I, and I have to say... Obviously, I'm a little biased because I was at Second City for a long time. But Second City was a very unusual place, uh, especially when we were located in our original theater, the old Fire Hall Theater in Toronto. Um, The green room, basically the dressing room sort of opened onto the street (laughs) in a way. So after the performance, we would open the doors and comedians and actors would come in and we would sit in the dressing rooms and the, the beer taps would be left open and it was a really wonderful place that just uh, fostered a lot of creativity and, and partnerships and people, you know, partnering up both creatively and romantically. And uh, it, it just created a lot of great work. Um, uh, so I, I'm just I'm very proud of Second City. It's still going. It's running for a long time in Toronto and Chicago and Las Vegas and a lot of different uh, cities now across North America. But it's a great place to work. And in terms of the overlap, uh, certainly Don McKellar, your partner, is the book writer on yes. this, has written a number of, of independent films, which, which we've seen in the U.S. and certainly have, have been seen around the world. Is, is it a very easy transition between the mediums? And, and is it, it, how, how large or small is the community? Or are you just all running into each other in, on every platform? Yes. It's, it's – well – you know, of course, they're all, they are their sort of own sub-communities. The film community, independent film community, is, is what it is. And I come mainly from uh, television, which perhaps overlaps a little more with the comedy community 
in Toronto. Um, but yeah, we all trade off. I mean, Don and I, my first writing job on TV was on a series that Don created on Canadian television called Twitch City. And we, we wrote that together. Um, and and uh, Don's Don uh, first worked in film because of Bruce McDonald, the Canadian director who saw his work um, in, in in his own little theater company called the Augusta Company, which did sort of experimental theater in Toronto. So there's there's no question that the film and television community looks to the theater community for their writers and performers. And they're not physically separated to the degree that here in the U.S. we sort of look at film and television as being West Coast and theater is primarily East Coast. It's all happening primarily in Toronto? Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver mm-hmm. are, the, are, the, are the main centers. And, of course, Montreal is its own animal because it's French-Canadian, and they have their own incredibly good film industry and, and theater community. Um, and so we we don't have a lot of crossover with them, although Don has, um, but he's unusual. Uh, but yes, uh, each uh, Vancouver and uh, Toronto basically are are their own centers. Um, Halifax now on the east coast of Canada started to have a little bit of a TV boom, and uh, some of our best shows have come out of that community of performers and producers. And I've worked on a few of those shows as well. Well, as we talk about television, film, theater, you have also been the creator of one of the more remarkable TV shows of recent years, um, for my money, called Slings and Arrows, which uh, has aired here in the U.S. so far on the Sundance Channel. We've seen two two runs of the series. Um, it is coming out on DVD shortly for those who don't get the Sundance Channel. Yeah. Um, interestingly, another piece of writing that is about theater because Slings and Arrows is the story of a Shakespeare troupe in Canada. Um, How did that come to be? It seems in the U.S. the idea of a TV show about a theater company seems almost impossible. Especially a Shakespearean theater company. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, um, it was uh, created uh, with Rhombus Media, this company in in Toronto who who mainly makes, uh, or at that time anyway, mainly made art films and dance films. Um, and they had they had made a documentary called The Orchestra, which was nominated for an Oscar many years ago. And it was about the goings-on um, of this orchestra pre- preparing f- their new season or preparing for a concert, I think. And uh, Neve Fitchman at Rhombus thought it would be wonderful to have a show about the backstage life at a theater. And, uh, and, and that was basically the beginning of the idea. Um, and... Uh, a few people came on board. Eventually, Mark McKinney and Susan Coyne and myself took took the idea of Slings and Arrows, and and uh, I think it's I, I love the show. I have to say, I'm very proud of it because it is about a theater festival that's kind of based on Stratford, Ontario, where they do uh, Shakespearean plays. And we've taken these these uh, major works like Hamlet and Macbeth and King Lear in the third season. And the, the, the sort of themes reflected in those works are reflected in the lives of the characters backstage at the festival. And um, it's, it was an amazing project to write. It's, it's, each season is six hours long. It's one continuous story. It's based on a sort of British miniseries model. And each season deals with one or two plays, the first being Hamlet. And uh, we, were, we, we were allowed to sort of create these interweaving character lives and ironically reflect the themes in the play and 
and uh, it was it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful writing experience. Well, did this come out of any of you having worked at Stratford specifically? Susan Coyne had worked uh, at Stratford and uh, at another major uh, theater in Toronto called Soul Pepper Theater, and many other theaters. She's a very well-respected Canadian actress. Uh, Mark McKinney's probably best known for Kids in the Hall and Saturday Night Live, but he also worked in the theater and Williams, Williamsburg Festival. And I myself had worked in many theaters in Toronto, including Second City. And when we first got together, we all started sharing these stories. And, and the backstage antics, whether they be at Second City or Williamsburg or Stratford, were all the same. The egos and the drinking and, the, you know, the envy and the, you know, the superstitions, they were all the same. And so w- w- there was this kind of universality about being an actor, the acting experience. And also, I think just uh, to kind of put the story in perspective, it's it's a conflict between two guys in the show, the artistic director of the festival and was he the marketing guy, the executive He he begins basically as the marketing guy Uh and slowly grows up the food chain and eventually becomes the executive director of the festival. And it is, yes, it's a conflict between art and commerce throughout the entire uh, uh, three-season arc. Art versus budget and dollars and bottom line and all that. Yes, yes. And then, uh, you know, the characters on stage, the actors, actresses and all that also. If, if you were to do a synopsis of, say, the first season, what would it be in you know, 50 words or less for, for, <laughs> for our radio audience? <laughs> well, uh, basically, the artistic director of the New Burbage Festival is tragically killed in the first episode. By uh, a ham truck. By a, a Canada's best hams is the, <laughs> the, what's on the side of the truck that runs him over. And it's a very kind of – it's a black comedy in a way, the whole series. Um, and his uh, um, compatriot from – Years ago, uh, Jeffrey Tennant, this, he's sort of a mad director, uh, a bad boy of the theater. Um, he's, he's, he played Hamlet many years ago and had a nervous breakdown on stage and disappeared into a world of, of very low-budget theater. In fact, at the beginning of the series, he's working in a theater called Theater Sans Argent, meaning theater without money in English. And uh, he comes back to New Burbage and reluctantly becomes the artistic director in the absence of his, his uh, mentor. And uh, he's kind of haunted by, by his mentor throughout the series, literally. Um, hence the parallel to Hamlet. And, and uh, it's, it's about Jeffrey's struggles to put on a production of Hamlet, the show that drove him mad. <laughs> quite literally, yeah. Yeah, it has quite literally. delightful opening and closing music. And so many American shows have delightful openings and closings. You know, people remember certain shows by their theme music. Yes. Why don't we play a little bit of the theme? Which Please do you want to play? Do. Opening or closing? Oh, oh, the opening is fine because I, the opening is – I wanted the show to open with Why Must the Show Go On? But we couldn't afford the rights to that song. So I went to my friends Lisa Lambert and Greg Morrison, who wrote Drowsy with me, and said, let's create a little uh, theatrical anthem uh, about Hamlet. And uh, we created this song together. That's the opening music from Slings and Arrows, which comes out on DVD later this month, I guess. Yes, I believe so, in June, yes. Yeah, and it is such a a fun and uh, exciting show to watch. It's one of those things like a good book. You just can't put it down. Oh, that's good. Thank you. When my my wife and I watched it, we watched all six episodes without stop. (laughs) Just sat on a Saturday night and just finished about 3 o'clock in the morning, but it was worth it. Oh, that's good. Season three is currently in production? We've just, we've, yes, Basically, we've wrapped and we're editing now. We're very excited about 
uh, season three because Bill Hutt is, is really Canada's greatest actor. Uh, is in the third season. We do Lear. Uh, Hutt's Hutt did a seminal Lear that was never recorded. So in the third season, he he performs Lear, and we and and uh, he's stunning. So I'm, we're very very excited about season three. One of the things I'm curious about with the show is while theater people love to have attention, they can sometimes be very thin-skinned about having fun poked at them. Have you had any people in the theater community think, oh, they're doing me, or the people at Stratford overall thinking, my God, is this what people think goes on backstage here? Um, Stratford at first was uh, angry about the series. Um, Richard Manette was the very, artistic director. Yes, he thought that the, uh, the, the, the one of the characters was based on him, and uh, he was an alcoholic. I mean, the character. <laughs> Let's and, be very clear. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and he was very upset about it. S- subsequently, when they this was just seeing an early draft, though he'd never. This was before we shot the show, and 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 once uh, Stratford saw the show, he said to me, "I remember in this meeting because we had a meeting early on. He was so." Outraged, and he said, "No Stratford actor will be in this show. You realize that." And of course, we were—we have every major Stratford actor <laughs> in the show. Uh, and I, Stratford t- completely embraced the series. Eventually, when they saw that it really is a love letter to the theater, I, I believe yeah, theater triumphs in the end in each <laughs> in each season, uh, despite all odds. And uh, and he, and so he he really I believe came on board. I haven't really spoken to him in a while, <laughs> but. Um, but yes, they, they they were making copies of it and passing it around, and and people. Uh, we we Susan and Mark and I uh, did a little writing in uh, Montreal, and um, visited a theater there where Mark had performed, and the the staff of the theater came running up to us and were saying, "We watch this. We have a special viewing of Slings and Arrows with the entire staff every lunch, and we watch an episode." Of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of interesting that you describe Slings and Arrows as being a love letter to the theater, and the Drowsy Chaperone is kind of a love letter to musicals, a Valentine to it musicals. It is, it's yes. Been described. Yes, you do a lot of love letters. It seems. Well, we love the theater, <laughs> <laughs> and it shows. Yes, I think we all have a, all the creators sort of have a love hate relationship with the theater because. We, we love what it's capable of, but we're so disappointed normally, <laughs> which I think is true of any art form. I think you could say that about anything. You, you know how powerful it can be, and you want that transporting experience, and it, it's so rare. Without giving away too much of the third season, I'm fascinated by something that you've set up at the end of season two, which is the idea that the managing director of the theater company might in fact be taking artistic control. Yes. And we now have learned that uh, the managing director of the Stratford Festival is becoming the artistic director in real life. Yes. What does that do to your writing, and how do you think they're going to respond to this plot line? It's inc- in- incredibly prescient on our part. <laughs> we didn't know that was going to happen. Um, we, uh, he's different from the character presented in the show. Um, uh, the, uh, who, person who was a journal manager is now artistic director of Stratford has, has directed many, many shows. Um, Richard, the character in Slings and Arrows was not a director. Um, but he made some savvy artistic decisions along the way and the board, uh, sort of slipped him in. He actually has a puppet artistic director, uh, at, at the end of season three. That he is able to control, but basically he's in charge now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is really amazing how many things came true. And it, it, one of the things uh, in the series is we kept on 
we, we were having a, a, a music the rights to a musical were being discussed in in uh, the first season and every time we wrote the music we're trying to think of an absurd musical that that would be potentially very profitable and every time we came up with an idea it was made it was uh, yeah the John Lennon the, a queen a musical about Queen a musical about the Beach Boys everyone that we came up we sort of, sort of pop culture creation for the musical theater was made and we had to change the joke. Every time. Somebody stole your idea already. Oh, yes. I, <laughs> this is true. Well, where, where do you see the show going for the future? You must have a story arc uh, under, in mind. Um, Slings and Arrows? Well, yeah. again, it's it was conceived as a three-part miniseries. It's over. But we do want to do something with the format, I think, in America. That's what we're discussing uh, now, which is very exciting. And and we'll see what happens with that. But there's been a lot of interest in it, so we'll see where it goes. How about in terms of uh, of, of musical theater? Now that Drowsy Chaperone is apparently a hit, uh, <laughs> any thoughts to continuing in that tradition of Broadway musicals for yourself? For myself? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's been a... Uh, again, I, I've learned so much about creating a musical with this in, in, experience, and uh, I, I'm eager to do it again. I mean, we're very lucky because we have such a fabulous team now. We have Casey, who's it's like a long lost brother, and that's true of Kevin McCullum as well, and many of the producers. And we have such a great team together that we have been discussing what follows Drowsy, and 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 that's very very exciting discussion. Hmm. That I can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, give us an idea, but that wouldn't be fair. Well, Bob Martin, the man in chair, and I shouldn't say the man, Bob Martin, man in chair. Man get, in chair. Get the character's well, name correct. Well, should we ask, why are you not the man in the chair, but specifically man in chair? There must have been a choice, because it doesn't trip off the tongue as easily. No, it's easier to write in a script. <laughs> so just I'm less MIC, typing? Basically, That's really the, the issue? <laughs> yes, basically. Was there any thought to giving him a real name? There was a discussion about that. I mean, there's, there's been a long discussion about how much of this man's life we reveal, but I was very adamant about not naming him because I wanted him to be as much of an everyman as possible. And, and I thought any eh, eh, we do give quite a bit away about the specifics of his own personal tragedy at one point in the show, but but you never see the, the whole portrait, and, and I didn't want that to happen. Well, good. And on that note, Bob Martin, man in chair, at least at this moment, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.